Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, it's a pleasure to have in the beach shack Mike Tipton. Now I've been working with him over the last couple of years with Float to Survive and, and how people react in cold water and also in deep water. Now he's a professor of human and applied physiology and he has done years and years of study, well over 20, 30 years of studying the effects of cold water shock and also the best way to save yourself if you fall into the water and you find yourself panicking, which as we both agree, and you can hear it in this podcast, that float is your best chance of survival. Now let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with Mike. This week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure to have Professor Mike Tipton. Now, he's done a lot of study on cold water shock and floating and the best way to survive. He's from the UK, so welcome, Mike, into the Beach Shack. Lovely to be here, Hoppo. Hello. Mate, now let's uh, go right back. You are born uh, and bred in the UK, so tell us a bit about that, mate, the early days. Yeah, that is going right back. Um, <laughs> Let's go back to the late 50s, actually, um, sadly. Uh, yeah, no, uh, grew up here just north of London, got into swimming at a very early age, uh, largely because of my mother's uh, influence. She was a swim teacher for 60 years or something like that. Uh, I'm completely the wrong shape to be a swimmer. I'm short and stocky as opposed to long and thin, so I never really did very well. But I did uh, s- swim sort of county level. I was the highest level I got to, swam for from the age of about five through to competitively through to <clears throat> around about 18. Went away, um, I was very big into my sports, so um, played pretty much all the sports one way or another. Went off and uh, did sports science or physical education in those days uh, at Keele University. Uh, and um, at the end of that, I uh, saw an MSc in Human and Applied Physiology at King's College in London which was basically doing all the extreme things that you'd want to do. It was like a theme park for scientists, really. It was a human centrifuge, go to altitude, go into the heat, go into the cold. Uh, So it was founded on a large part of it was extreme environmental physiology. A lot of it was also um, medicine and based in the teaching hospitals in London, which is where the course was. And so I went and did that and enjoyed it. Um, At the same time, I was now playing rugby rather than swimming so much. I played rugby from the age of 11 to the age of 43. And then it took me too long to recover uh, to, between games. So I was still recovering from the previous game a week later. So I gave that up. From the MSc course, we'd visited the Institute of Naval Medicine. And there was a guy there called Frank Golden, um, a surgeon commander who went on to be an admiral. And he was doing a study on swim failure in cold water. And he was looking for, for volunteers. And I volunteered for this a 20-minute swim in five-degree water wearing a pair of swimming trunks. I didn't know at the time, but they were betting on whether or not I would finish it. And everyone had bet that I wouldn't. But of course, what they hadn't allowed for was the fact that I was a pretty efficient swimmer. Uh, and so I did it. And that was the basis for friendship between Frank and I that went on for nearly 40 years. And we worked together. I stayed at the Institute of Naval Medicine, did my PhD at King's College in London, based at the Institute of Naval Medicine in Gosport. And then <clears throat> when I left King's, went to Surrey University and then down to Portsmouth University. But for 22 years, I was seated at the Institute of Naval Medicine. And on the sports front, when I gave up rugby at 43, I took up triathlon because it was non-contact and slowly did what I think a lot of people do in triathlon, went from the sprint ones up to Ironman. And now I try and do an Ironman every five years because it's cheaper than um, private health care. So if I survive the last Ironman, I'm, I reckon I'm okay for five years. <laughs> so I've got one next year, 2024, Aust- or the Austria 
Ironman, so I'll be 65 doing that. So hopefully that'll see me through to 70 or not. <laughs> Jeez, that's a great effort, still doing uh, yeah, triathlons and having that goal as well. And With the study, did you think you'd come to where you are today in – or was that something that you wanted to know is because you had a swimming background or was it from people drowning that you thought, I, I need to study this? Yeah, it was a bit of everything, Hoppo. It was, firstly, it was, uh, I obviously had an interest in the water. And actually, when I look back, the water has been fairly prominent in pretty much everything I've done professionally and in, in my private life with, you know, uh, open water swimming triathlon uh, and, and in my sports life as well so I mean it was, it was kind of perfect storm at the Institute of Naval Medicine I turned up there interested in temperature regulation how the body works I mean everyone's interested in physiology everyone's interested in how their body works and this guy was doing Frank was doing a study on swimming in cold water and how it affected the body so it pretty much ticked every box and then of course it doesn't take very long to look at the statistics and see there's a th- at least a thousand people a day drowning in the UK, it's somebody every 30 hours, a child a week. And that, I mean, those staggering statistics add to the add to the drive to get involved and would do work in this area. And so, yeah, that was it. And on the sports side, my, you talk about age. Well, my ambition is to be world champion by being the only person in the event. <laughs> Mate, that's my theory, I think, with ocean ski paddling. We've got the world championships coming up soon and... Uh... Dead set to, and I'm in the over 50s now and, and, and to, to win the over 50s you've basically got to finish top 20 in the open just to, to get a, a shot so yeah I might uh, have your theory I think that's a good one just keep going until no one else is there <laughs> you've got to, you, you must be number one in terms, the problem is the people who keep going tend to be the good ones <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my problem too yeah uh, now mate let's talk about floating I know we'll, we'll get on to um, the projects that we've you've been doing and, and that I've been doing in Australia, but go back to how you first started recording or, or how you thought about, okay, I need to scientifically know what's going on here and what's the best method to stop these people drowning. Now, whether obviously you were doing it for uh, cold water drowning, but it's no different to drowning in general as far as I can see. Yeah, so when I started in 1982, two stroke three on my PhD, which was into the human responses to cold water immersion and uh, the adaptation to cold water. There was still perception was that the problem when you went into cold water, it was hypothermia. And that perception had started with the Titanic, where lots of people did die from hypothermia. They were in icy cold, but very flat, calm um, water, wearing a life jacket. And they probably did die from hypothermia. It was reinforced in the Second World War where two-thirds of the Royal Navy casualties occurred in the survival phase as opposed to due to direct enemy action. And that's why the Navy were so keen on studying this, and that's why the Institute of Naval Medicine were working on this. And But there was some, th- there was some information coming out that suggested that it wasn't hypothermia. So in 1977, the Home Office in the UK re- published a report which showed that two-thirds of those that died going into cold water died within about 10 feet, a few metres of a safe refuge and two-thirds of them were regarded as good swimmers. Now a good swimmer doesn't die two or three metres from safe refuge from the protracted period of immersion required to become hypothermic. An adult human being won't become hypothermic, defined as a deep body temperature below 35, in less than about half an hour. So this suggested that something much more rapid was occurring uh, to cause to incapacitate these individuals and so we started to look at the initial responses. Um, no, this was first mentioned in about 1884 in a German publication of saying that well, when people go into cold water, you see an increase in heart rate and an increase in breathing frequency. But it was almost there as an academic footnote. Nobody had seen the relevance of that. And so we started to look at the initial responses to cold water immersion in the first couple of minutes. And we saw this gasp response that was uncontrollable, that was big enough to cross the lethal dose for drowning. Gasp response of two to three litres, lethal dose for drowning in salt water, about one and a half litres, followed by uncontrollable hyperventilation. Normally you breathe about 12, 10 litres a minute, uh, goes up to nearly 150 when you're in cold water. 
uh, and an increase in, increase in heart rate and cardiac output and you know blood pressure and all these things. And we, I remember sitting in a, a room chatting to Frank about what we might call this, and we came up with cold shock. Uh, Frank didn't like the word shock because the medical connotation of it is something quite different. But we agreed that it, it's good because it's just a shocking response. So there was born the cold shock response. I mean, when you look at these problems, and it doesn't really matter whether it's heat, cold, altitude, it doesn't matter. You've got three ways of trying to address them, technologically, behaviourally, or physiologically. So with cold water and cold shock, um, physiologically, if you repeatedly go into cold water, you become habituated to it and that cold shock response diminishes. It can halve in as little as six, two or three minute immersions. And, and about 14 months later, it's still reduced by about 25%. We couldn't do it any more than 14 months because we'd run out of friends by then. They, <laughs> they weren't going to come back anymore. Um, so there are physiological things you can do. There are technological things you can do. So one of the things we did for the offshore oil industry in the UK was develop an emergency breathing system called Air Pocket. Uh, because it was quite clear that people were in helicopter ditchings. Uh, some of those that didn't get out had undone their seatbelt and just simply couldn't hold their breath long enough to get out through the window. And although the, the, these individuals were being provided by immersion suits and life jackets, which would help them at the surface of the water, there was nothing to help them get out the helicopter. So there was born a technological solution, which was a, um uh, air pocket, a, a breathing bag, basically, a very simple um, system. But you know, gave you at least a minute to get out of the helicopter, uh, as opposed to a few seconds, which is what your breath hold would be in cold water. And the final thing is behaviour, and that's where we come on to the the float to survive, float to live area. So we did a study in 1986 where we looked at the success of people swimming in cold water if they went straight into the water and started to swim, or if they went into the water, stayed still for a couple of minutes, and then started to swim. And that was published in the Journal of, of Physiology. And the, the result was, you know, everybody managed to swim for about 10 minutes if they stayed still for a couple of minutes first because they got their breathing back under control. You know, you're, you're a swimmer. You know that if you're trying to swim, you need to be able to coordinate your breathing with your swim stroke. If you've lost control of your breathing, that's not going to happen. If you're breathing at, at you know... 114 litres of air in and out of the lung, 66 breaths per minute, you're not going to be able to coordinate that even with a breaststroke swim um, stroke. When people didn't do that two minutes, uh, about half of them failed. And so, I mean, that that's going right back. I mean, that's this is now nearly 40 years old, this research. But that that was the foundation, I would say. That was the first piece of work that said, actually, what we need to do is hang on to something, stay still, do nothing until we get our breathing back under control. And then our, our subsequent survival is going to be much more much more likely. And that's just, you know, morphed into float. Uh, because, of course, if you've not got anything to hang on to, uh, like a surfboard that I'm sure we'll, we might come on to talk about, but if you've got nothing to hold on to, like some wreckage and flotsam, some jets and a board, then the best thing to do is float. And so there was born that idea that like many ideas we, when you're young you're very naive you think you've come up with an emergency breathing system next year everyone will be using it on average it takes 10 years in my experience to turn a good idea that is obviously needed into something that's actually there available to be used now with you saying that with the cold water i've also out of 31 years of being a professional lifeguard it's very similar because the first thing someone does when they can't stand up is they want to swim as fast as they can back to where they came from, which is pretty much back into the rip. Their breathing gets rapid, they get exhausted, they start swallowing water, and that's obviously the start of the drowning process. When we find the ones float and relax and get their breathing back and go with the flow of the water, they end up on the sandbank or where the waves are breaking, which pushes them back to shore. The other thing I realised was if you come up behind someone and shock them, the first thing they do is... <gasps> Like you're saying in cold water, you take that big, big breath. That seems to be similar when people fall into deep water, even if it's not cold or it could be obviously in Sydney, water's a lot warmer. But the same process happens. Have you found that? Yeah. So, I mean, just to put that in context in terms of water temperature, thermoneutral water temperature for a human is 35. And that's a temperature you can sit in 
and not warm up or cool down without, you know, and it doesn't evoke shivering or sweating. You know, so that's pretty high temperature that we don't see in very many places. The cold shock response starts in water at about 25, just maybe a bit below 25 degrees Celsius, but is controllable. So you'll, you'll get that, but you, you don't, you know, you can stop the hyperventilation that follows. Once you start getting down into the teens, then it becomes more uncontrollable and it peaks somewhere between 10 and 15 degrees Celsius. So that just gives you a feel for the level of control. Now, and But there's, there's an enormous individual variability in it. So when we look at someone like Lewis Pugh, who does a lot of um, cold water swimming for, for uh, you know, climate change reasons, etc., just to raise the problems of our oceans, uh, you put him into cold water, you don't see a change in his breathing at all. Um, what um, going into water, and it's cool and cold water does, it, it, it activates the um, fight or flight response. So we're a tropical animal. We want to be naked in 28 degree air. You put somebody into 20, 25 degree water and below, you'll get a reaction that is preparing you to to fight or run away. And that's an increase in breathing. It's an increase in heart rate. And people just become activated. So it's a basic instinct to start thrashing about, to start swimming. And it's, But it's just about the worst thing to do as a terrestrial air breathing animal when you're in water but we're not we're not designed for being in water in that way so it's just an inappropriate response so part of that float to live float to survive story is also fight your instincts and stay still rather than fight fight your instincts and thrash about but um yeah psychologically i mean we've written papers on the different respiratory responses to different scenarios certainly when people get stressed or scared or shocked the initial response is a is a gasp and then going back to when you started the, the research, what did you do to sort of get to understand that floating is probably the best way to go? I know you said that you're putting people in cold water and, and analysing their condition. We, we did a lot of studies in the laboratory. Uh, and we did lots of studies of people immersed, immersed at different depths. We were looking at immersing people in different water temperatures at different rates we're looking at showering and that's all great and it gives us the academic confidence to say we know what we're talking about in terms of this response i mean i can tell you pretty much how the response is evoked from the cold receptors 0.18 millimeters beneath the surface of the skin right through to the you know the respiratory centers in the brain um i mean that that tends to bore people fairly quickly <laughs> when you start so that's not so one of the great things about being an applied scientist is um, you're working with people like yourself, Hoppo. We were, in our case, it was with Surf Life Saving GB. It was with the Royal National Life, um, Royal National Lifeboat Institution, the Royal Life Saving Society. So you've got all of these, you've got all these organisations who are hungry for information, uh, but more importantly, can take your academic scientific output and turn it into something that's more practical. So quite a lot of what we did in the early days was just start to publicise cold shock and say, listen, guys, you know, at the moment, your search and rescue policies, your protection, PPE policies, your treatment policies are all based on hypothermia. That's not the problem. The problem is a loss of control of your breathing and an increase in the workload of the heart in the first minute of immersion. And what we've got to do is get people through that because we know from our studies that 60% of those that die going into cold water and cool water die in that first minute or two let's give them the chance of getting beyond that and that that involves quite a lot of i say working with end users we there's been a sea change in my, in my over my lifetime in how scientists interact with the media when when i started you were regarded as lightweight if you did anything with the media i think what we do now is we work much more closely with the media and the media get stuff off of us so if you switch the TV on in the UK, it'll either be somebody dancing or it'll be somebody cooking something or it'll be a disaster. I can't dance or cook. So we tend to be in the, dis <laughs> we tend to be in the disaster bit of it. And, but, you know, so I, I did one, just as an example, in the early days, I did one program in the UK called 999 where I was talking about cold shock. Nine million people watched that. Now, I, you know, you, you do TV stuff. I can talk and give lectures for the rest of my life and I'm not going to meet 9 million people. So we use the media, and we still use the media. 
And then the RNLI campaign from 2014 initially started by telling people about cold shock. How long, and there's people can go online and see the adverts about how long can you hold your breath. This was these were in cinemas. Yeah, they were on Freeview TV. And then around about 2016, 2017, a report was published that showed that in the UK, about half of those people who fall into cold water had no intention of going in. So it's not much point. You can warn them about cold shock, but what they really want to know is what to do when they go in. And that's where we switched the, the, the policy and the RNI switched the advice more to what to do when you go in. And that's when the float thing really hit, hit the streets, really, in terms of people you know, being told about it. And, uh, you know, it's a constant battle. You know, we all think that when we when we do something like this, there's, you know, trillions of people watching it. But the fact is, you have to just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And I think we've got to a level of awareness in the UK now where, you know, 40 to 50 percent of people, are, if, if asked, will say, you know, do you do you do you know what um, float to live is? And they, they'll say, yeah, they've heard of it. But it's it's a constant battle to to raise that profile because I think that's a lesson. For, I call it a lesson for life. If you know that, and that's why I want to see it going to schools. I want to see it on the national curriculum in the UK. I mean, we're surrounded by water. We're full of water with rivers, and it seems to me that one fifteen minute lesson in schools about rips, about tides, and about cold shock and what to do about them would save you know lots of lives going forward. I mean, just to put the numbers in context, um, <clears throat> you're talking about something like uh, 25% of those that die are under the age of five, 40% under the age of 16. When you add up how many people, how many years worth of life that loses, it's about 90 million years of life lost because we're losing kids, particularly who would go on to live hopefully to 70 years. And the sooner we can get this message into people, by the media, in through schools, by the by groups like Surf Life Saving Australia, Surf Life Saving GB, the better. Yeah, and I mean with the what I've been doing with Float to Survive, which is coincidental because we sort of had the, the same theory of floating is the way to go and we've been educating people now to do, you know, float if you're in a rip float, if you're in a dam, in a river, in a backyard pool, yeah, float because one, it'll keep your head above water, your airways and your breathing so you're not just swallowing water. And also that gives you more time though for someone to come and rescue as well. And what we've been seeing, and, and we had some um, locals from, from Bronte that were over in Indonesia, if anyone heard that story, where they were out lost in uh, the boat sank, they were lost for about 38 hours, but they were floating all together on their surfboards. And I think without them doing that and tried to paddle to shore or paddle and use their energy, they might not have survived. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And also water has 25 times the thermal conductivity of air. And if you're immersed in water at the same temperature as air, you'll cool about five times quicker. So just, I mean, anything you can do to get a bit out of the water, you're better off than being in it. And all the way out is better off than being a bit in it. So being on top of a surfboard, even though you may periodically get wet by a wave, is much, much better. So you've got a floating and a thermal advantage. One of the problems with the float story, um, <clears throat> historically, is people don't believe they can float. So they, when they panic, instead of doing nothing and floating, they tend to thrash about because they worry about sinking. And we spent quite a lot of time trying to convince people that they can float. So we, we went to the RNLI, Royal National Lifeboat Institution, HQ, down in Paul, where they've got a big sea survival tank, and just about every member of the HQ there, over 100 people, turned up and went into the water. And we were asking them beforehand, do you think you can float? And the majority said they didn't think they could. Um, in fact, they all did. I mean, women will float because they have a higher body fat content, so they're more buoyant. Uh, anyone wearing training shoes, they're, they're like life jackets on the feet, these things. They're very buoyant. And even those that struggled to float didn't have to do very much. You know, it's just simple, just we call it stroking a dog, you know, this kind of sculling just to keep. So I think people were surprised that they could, they could float. But then if you look at the, you know, the densities of fresh water and, and the human body, you should be able to keep about 5% of the body above water. 
hopefully it's this bit at the five percent yeah, rather yeah. than what as soon as people do that you don't breathe through these i would keep yeah, them in yeah. the water of course it's better still in salt water because that's that's got a uh, you know that's got um, uh, a greater specific gravity so uh, the other the other misconception was that clothing drags you down if you take your clothing off most people are on the beach and throw it into the sea it'll float um you know, so w- what it does do is it does impede your swimming um, because it clings to the body but we don't want people to swim so actually clothing helps you float uh, because air gets trapped between the layers of the clothing and increases your buoyancy so those two misconceptions do require to be addressed and people need to not worry that they can't float and not concern themselves that their clothing will drag them down because in the vast majority of cases people will float and clothing will help so in your studies do you find then that it is easier or quicker to teach someone to float than what it would to teach someone to actually swim oh yeah i mean i mean as i say my mum taught swimming for 60 years and the first thing she got people to be was confident in the water although i think in those days and my mother was you know a fairly dominant character i think the kids were more scared of my mother than they were of drowning to be honest so <laughs> they uh, they did what she told them and she got them comfortable in the water she got them float she got their face in so they got comfortable putting their head in because that's a big obstacle for a lot of people learning to swim that's where goggles i'm old enough to have been swimming before goggles were invented but they were an enormous step in the right direction yeah and you get people then you teach floating you teach people to float um and that's and we're advocating that now that you know that's an important point of an important part rather of teaching people to swim is to first teach them to float and we're also encouraging people to go and you know don't wait until the emergency situation if you're in a swimming pool just prove to yourself you can float lay back you know extend your arms and legs don't worry too much if you have to do a little bit to stay afloat but just work out what the minimum amount you have to do to stay afloat but it's interesting that that people have that that conception that, that preconception of an inability to float and of a you know an, an obstacle caused by clothing and i also hear a lot of people say that oh, i can swim but i can't float well that's is that a myth no, I mean, there are, I mean, there's a, there's a range, uh, there's a range. I mean, the, the buoyant compartments of the body are the air in your lungs, the air in your body, the body fat as well, uh, and all of these things and its distribution are important. So there are some people who, you know, a, a sort of a, a, a muscly, very thin individual may well have to do a little bit more than somebody who's uh, got more body fat to, to float and it also may be critically dependent on the amount of air in the lung so um, <clears throat> you know on complete inhalation you might have seven liters uh, of positive buoyancy 70, seven kilograms that equates to positive buoyancy that goes down to about one liter if you're completely exhaling so no there are people who might need to swim or, or do a bit more than others they wouldn't need to swim it would be a, a matter of as I say just sculling a bit um, yeah, uh, that one of the pieces of work we're doing at the moment because the original bit of work the original pieces of work and it's one of the weaknesses of science I think generally is it tends to be done on white men between the ages of 18 and 39 between the time of 9 o'clock in the morning and 5 o'clock in the afternoon and you know that's not particularly representative of when events occur time-wise um, of and of the people who are exposed to them. So we're now doing some work collaboratively with the RNLI and the Black Swimming Association to look at whether the things we've advocated also apply to African, Caribbean and Asian um, groups. We did the work last summer, which is just going to hit the press. In fact, it's going to be presented out in Australia at the World Congress on Drowning Prevention uh, in December on whether or not what we advocated also applies in moving water in sea in tidal water so and it does which is a good is good news but now we're moving on to other groups and you think like we call it active floating or treading water like you're saying you're moving your you know the sculling position you might move your legs a bit to but that you're not using a lot of energy and you can still control your breathing can't you in that situation yeah yeah um, and uh, that term is a really good one. We we also stumbled across that because 
you know, when people say but the perception of floating is you do absolutely nothing. And then the perception of swimming is that you're doing a swimming stroke. And there's something in between, which is what you've just called active floating. And I would agree entirely. We call it the same thing, which is essentially you're primarily on the surface of the water because you're floating, but with a little bit of action to help you stay there if you need it. Uh, and, you know, just just remember, this is all being driven by our understanding of the physiology of going into cold water. So that rapid change in skin temperature when you first go in causes a drive to breathing, a drive to, you know, heart, your heart rate, your cardiac output, your blood pressure. But those receptors adapt pretty quickly. So within about a minute or a minute and a half, you've got your control back of breathing. So this is not something, you, I mean, you absolutely you do it for the first minute because you want to avoid taking that small volume of water into the lung that's associated with drowning. Uh, but thereafter, it's worth continuing to float because, as you say, you're conserving energy. And also, we know that if the water temperature is below 25, you cool more quickly if you exercise and you stay still. And again, that's a misconception. People always equate things to air. They say, well, when I exercise in air, I get warmer. Well, that's the, that is absolutely true. But when you exercise in cool or cold water, you cool more quickly because of the nature of water and the fact that you're stirring it around the body, you're sending blood into the limbs, which is very quickly lost to the water. So staying still is good from an energy conservation point of view, from a heat conservation point of view. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah, and also from an avoidance of drowning point of view. And, and I know that's in Australia too. A, a lot of people, as you said before, with cold water, they drown quite quick. It's not a, a long process. They, as soon as they get in deep water, they thrash around, lose their energy, swallow water. It happens very, very quick. Yeah, it does. It can. Well, of course, if you're breathing away at 66 breaths a minute, shifting 114 litres of air in and out of the lung, uh, and your, your gasp response when you go in is two to three litres, so you can have crossed a lethal dose of drowning for drowning before you've even got back to the surface having fallen in which is one and a half litres for, for salt water. So, and then the process of drowning normally takes about two minutes to cardiorespiratory arrest. So, uh, you know, the, you might, if, you've, if you're able, you might have a breath hold in that. But if it's cold water, your breath hold goes, drops from a minute in air down to a matter of seconds. So it doesn't really add much. And then after about, after about two minutes um, of water going in and out of the lung, as you hyperventilate under the water and you gasp, and people are during that period, you'll see people fighting to get back to the surface. They'll, you know, we, you'll have seen it. They, they, we call it climbing the ladder. They're doing this. They come up to the surface. They go under. They come up. They go under. And on about the third time, they don't come up again. And then about two minutes later, they're in cardiorespiratory arrest. Then you've got about, if you get to somebody within about five to ten minutes, there's a reasonable chance of a, a resuscitation. Now, I know you've done loads of those, so you know you know this. Um, once you go beyond 10 minutes, then the chances of resuscitating somebody go down pretty quickly until you've got virtually no chance if they've been, you know, 25 minutes has passed. So drown on the one hand, drowning can be very quick, a matter of, you know, minutes. On the other hand, you can get a little bit of water into your lung that can slowly irritate the lung, particularly salt water, that causes the lung to pour fluid in, in an inflammatory response. And then eight hours after you've left the water, you can be in trouble. We, it used to be called secondary drowning. We don't use any of those terms like near drowning, dry drowning, secondary drowning anymore, because we've, we now know that drowning is a process, and that process can continue once you've left the water. I happen to think the process starts with ignorance in the community. If we could focus a lot more on drowning prevention, and telling people what not to do and understanding the, the risk of tides coming in and being isolated, rips and cold shock, then we could actually now that, that process before people go anywhere near the water. Well, what we've been doing, uh, we did a big campaign last summer on Float to Survive, and we've got the lifeguards now with the megaphone when someone is in a rip and tell them if they are swimming, we tell them to stop swimming, go with the flow of the water. We found... The ones that listen and do that, they save themselves, they end up on the sandbank or get washed in with the waves and, you know, they know we're watching. The ones that try and keep swimming, they try and swim against the rip, fighting the water, and we have to then go rescue them because they just get totally exhausted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
Firstly, quite a lot of people who find themselves in this situation haven't had a swimming background like, you know, let's say we have, we have had, so they're not very good swimmers anyway. So they don't swim very efficiently, which means you get exhausted very quickly. And then, you know, th these rips are going at about world record pace for 50 metres. And so the idea that you're going to be able to win, you know, break a world record getting back to the beach is naive. And so it's worth just remembering that it's absolutely pointless. These are not, this is not slow moving water. And as you say, I mean, I know that you teach to swim parallel to the shore and you, um, or, you know, swim parallel sort of get out of the rip or go with the rip. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, I mean, I, I just, I mean, I stand up, I give lots of talks, Hoppo, and I stand up in audiences that are obviously interested in what I've got to say, otherwise they wouldn't be there. And I say, does anybody know what a rip is? Does anybody know what a rip looks like? Does anybody know what to do to get out of a rip? And the number of people who respond positively to those three questions is incredibly small. Uh, and yet year in, year in, year out, we get you know problems with people trying to swim back to the shore in a rip. And I just wish we could get that information out there. And as you said, I've always, with swim parallel, I've never agreed with either because depending on the which way the rip's going, you know, the, the rips just don't directly go straight out the back of the, you know, from, from the sandbank or from the from the shore. They bend around and they go sideways and they have all these different formations. And you see people trying to swim parallel, but they might be going the wrong way parallel. And it's basically swimming straight back into it. And Generally, they always want to go back to where they're coming from. So we found that if you throw that out the window, throw swimming out the window, just float, control your breathing, and go with the flow of the water, you've got way better chance of survival. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's uh, absolutely the right thing to do. And it's even the right thing to do if you're in static calm water. We now know it's the right thing to do. We did some studies in the Cardiff White Water Centre which is where the canoeists go, the slalom canoeists go to, to practice. And we had people, kind of exciting thing to do really, had people going into that and trying to do different things. And again, just floating was the thing to do. The only thing you might do if you're in a fast flowing river is try and make sure you're floating feet first, in, you know, so that you can see if there's boulders or things you might go into. But it's still a, a, essentially a floating um, answer. Well, it's like when I watch the big wave surfing, you know, it's, it's big at the moment in Nazare and, you know, in Portugal. And when the surfers come up, they're not swimming, they're floating, uh, trying to get their breath and, and control their breathing because there potentially could be another wave coming. So it's the same sort of theory there as well. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, actually, you've just touched on one of my bucket list things is to go to Nazare and see that it's just a phenomenal place. But uh, not a place I'm going to go into the water, that's for sure. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, no, it's, uh, it, I, it all stems from an understanding of how the body works, the physiology of the body. And, it all, and in this case, the number, one, the number one thing for otherwise fit, young, healthy individuals is control your breathing. We know all the physiology. We know the neural pathways. We know that the cold shock response is essentially the neurophysiologically equivalent of it's okay once you're in, which everyone tells you about cold water. They don't tell you that it's not okay for the first minute or two, but after that, it's okay. And so we know all of that. And now it's just saying, well, okay, we've got, we've got thousands and thousands of people drowning because a small amount of water gets into the airway. What's the best thing to do behaviorally to minimize the chance of that? Now, you may also look at a technical solution and for some of the Surfer, big wave surfers have buoyancy aids that will bring them back to the surface. For example, we, we produced an emergency breathing system, as I say, for escaping from under the water. Or you might even look at it physiologically, that if you're going to be doing a lot of cold water stuff, go through a, go through a habituation regime, get used to it. So the cold shock drive is reduced. We've got, I don't know about Australia, but <coughs> excuse me, we've got an enormous number of people now have taken up open water swimming cold water swimming it's just grown exponentially where i'm based down in cornwall our local club at perrinporth went from 25 to a thousand members during lockdown because people couldn't get into swimming pools and you know this is now associated with claims for better mental health better physical health well-being etc but again there are safe and unsafe ways of doing that and if you want to do it the safest way you can you do it incrementally you get habituated you know you do all the things that you should do safely and including in which we tell them that if they do get into trouble, 
stay still float uh, and people will come to your assistance. Now, tell us about Float to Live, it, the campaign, which what I've been looking at and, and obviously we've chatted over the, the, the last couple of years and it's been such a successful campaign. I think it's probably, it, it can certainly claim to be in the UK the most successful public health water safety campaign that there's been in that it's been seen by 20 to 30 million people. It's very difficult with these kinds of things, Hoppo, because it's hard to get a measure of how successful a campaign like that is because, you know, there's, a, there's lots of factors which go into things like the number of people who drown. So you could introduce a really good campaign, but it could be also be a really good summer and the number of people go up, so the, the numbers don't, you know, it's really it's too multifactorial to pick on things. One of the things that I have been uh, impressed by is the number of people, this campaign, I say, has been running in various forms now since 2017, <clears throat> and the Float to Live component of it since 2000, sorry, 2014 the campaign started, the Float to Live bit, 2017, is the number of unsolicited contacts that the RNLI have received saying, I did that and uh, I did that float to live thing and I think it saved my life. And then people tell their story. Now, as I say, it's really hard to go out there. What you can do with a campaign is you can go out there and find out how many people are aware of the campaign, which, as I said earlier, has been done. And it's, you know, it's literally millions and millions of people are aware of it. But that doesn't tell you how many people have deployed the information that you've given them. But I and I think the RNLI are now up to sort of 40 or 50 unsolicited contacts where people have said, I saw I saw that TV advert or I saw that cinema advert or I saw that poster and I did it and I think it saved my life. And if people are interested, they can go onto the RNLI website or onto onto the the internet and they can they can Google, you know, float to live saves lives and all these stories come up. And they make the hairs on the back of their neck stand up, on the back of your neck stand up. Because for me, as essentially a laboratory scientist, to then make the step to be, apply that with groups like Surf Life Saving and then see it work is, a, is really tangible, is a really tangible result of, you know, that, that work and that science. And do you think in the future it's going to help reduce drowning by these campaigns? Like we've got our flight to... Uh, Float to survive here in Australia and float to live in the UK, and if that branches out to other countries, the world, and do you think that will? Yes, yeah. Well, it's not going to do any harm, that's for sure. Uh, and uh, I mean, the evidence thus far, although it's hard to pick it up in the overall data because, as I say, all the other factors that change the number of drownings, the evidence so far is it's already saving lives. And you know, it's. <sighs> Don't get me wrong, it's great to have rescue services. It's great to have protocols for the rescue, resuscitation, intensive care treatment of individuals. But actually, the biggest bang for your buck is in this educational area where you're preventing the problem. And there's absolutely no doubt that it works. Different interventions work, you know, I think differently. I've never been a great fan, for example, of signs at the beach. Because whenever I've, we used to go to the beach with my two kids, you know, they were straight onto the beach and I had to go after them. I didn't, you couldn't stop and read the sign. But, you know, there's other ways of doing it. There's notifications to mobile phones. There's public aware. I mean, you know, we don't have TV adverts in the UK for water safety. I think we should. But I know you do, you do and I know they do in New Zealand and in other countries. So, yes, I think that it's really important. I think... You know, as somebody who works in education, I'm bound to say I think education is important. But I think in this particular area, it really is. As I say, it's a lesson for life. If somebody learns what to do at you know, 10, 12, 11 years old in cold water, in a rip, avoids being cut off by a tide, then that is a lesson for life. Uh, the really important thing, which is why I'm delighted to have been speaking to you, Hoppo, for the last couple of years and today, is that this is coordinated. So we get we learn best practice from each other. And one of the problems, I think, in the area of prevention is lots of different organisations with lots of really good objectives and aims, but no real overarching coordination. And you can give people too many messages. 
You know, if they're getting a message from this organization, a message from that organization, from this, you know, then I think you become immune to that messaging. So I think what we really need is some international, national, international coordination and saying, this is what we want to say. And it might be float to live, float to survive. It might be something else. It might be something, you know, another aspect of water safety. But try and try and coordinate and focus these messages so people don't become confused or just overwhelmed by the messaging. And I agree. And I think that the the word float is should be the main, whether it's float to live, float to survive, but it's all float. I think that's the main thing. Float, control your breathing, go with the flow of the water. I think that's the, the main messaging. And then have all, that's what you do when you're in the water. When you're in, you're struggling, you, you, you're panicking. You know, that, that's the message for that. And, and as you said, still have all the other preventative messages before you get into that position. You're hoping a lot of people will listen to that and not get into the position. But there still will always be people falling into the water, ending up in the water in whichever way that that, that happens. Yeah. And I think, one. I mean, we all know this. So those of us who have done lots in the water over the years, like yourself and myself, know that the big difference between somebody who's an experienced water user and those somebody who's inexperienced is the ability to relax and, you know, and do the right things. And that's really what we've got to try and teach people. That's something which maybe you and I learned over many years of, of swim training or being in the water. But what you've got to try and do is shortcut that so that people get to that point where they've got the confidence and can relax and float and know that they're going to be okay doing that uh, so yeah, and, and that's what an education program should do. I'm in Australia. This is what I'm pushing for, to have a national campaign for Float to Survive. And do you think it's something that governments should get behind in this situation? I know that RL Nye over in the, the UK, they get a, a, a lot of money that they've, that they've got that uh, they can do the campaigns. But is it something that governments should get behind? Yeah, well, I think so. I think, uh, just to make the point, the RLI is not government funded. That's all come from public charitable donation and that's you know, and they choose to use a proportion of that for this prevention and education which i think is absolutely the right thing to do um but you know this is a major public health issue so drowning is the second or third most um, common cause of accidental death in most in most countries we're losing a lot of young people who have a tremendous amount of potential that they could have contributed to society as I say, over a 10-year period, something like 90 million years of life left lost around the world. <clears throat> so, yes, of course, government should. I mean, if you're a country that is, you know, surrounded by water, has lots of inland waterways, then a 15-minute lesson in a, in, a, in a classroom about how what to do in rips, how to avoid being cut off by the tide and what to do if the water's cold and you've lost control of your breathing is surely... Um, time well spent but break it i don't it's you know it's a bit like trying to break into fort knox breaking into the national curriculum in the uk i don't know what it's like in in uh, in australia but very, it's very it, very similar yeah but it's and it's such a shame because you know what you only we did a study not so long ago where we took uh you know nearly a thousand children and we measured their water safety knowledge in rips tides cold shock and we then gave them one lesson and we measured it again and it went up significantly and three to six months later it was still there that knowledge was still there it's not stuff you forget and so you've only got to get it out there once We'd, we would say 13 to 14 year olds because that's when you just start the inflection where people drown because they start to do stuff and that will be there for, for life so yes the government should get involved there should be it should be included in in the national curriculum of any country that has a large large bodies of water surrounding or within. But the main message in Australia is swim between the flags. It's been like that for for many many years, probably fifty plus or years that that I've been growing up here in Australia. Now the problem I have with it is it's a great message and it's good if you're around an area where the flags are. But there's only minimal beaches around Australia that have the red and yellow flags. So it makes it very difficult for people. You can't fit the whole nation into those areas. So they're going to go elsewhere. And that's why I think a, a message, still have the message between the flags, but there's got to be an overriding message, one single message that covers all the waterways. 
Yeah, so, and even if you're between the flags, <clears throat> if you get into trouble, the messages still float. So, I mean, that, as you say, that overarches. And also, you know, as I say, about half of the people, certainly in the UK, who go into cold water had no idea they were going in. And the chances of them falling into water between the flags is fairly slim. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely, I mean, maybe this is a, something which the Inter ILS, International Lifesaving um, Society, could, could take on. Because I don't think it really matters whether this is tepid, cool, cold water. I think the message stays the same, just from conserving energy, avoiding aspiration of water. Um, and, and, you know, and a lot of the people who fall into water, it may well be non-swimmers, but that doesn't mean they can't float. So I think it's, it's, it's definitely worth pursuing. Uh, it's just very hard to, to win the, the political argument um, to get it to get it onto a national curriculum so that all the kids do it, despite the fact that kids are the major victims uh, in amongst all of this. And as you said, I've watched it over and over and over. Where <coughs> they'll go between the flags to swim, but the water moves. The water pulls them across and they'll end up in the rips, into the, the gutters, and that's where they start drowning. You've got to go rescue them. But they did start in the flag. So... You know, there's got to be that message when you're in that panic state. And I think float is the best one that we can have. It's one simple message. And whether you call it float to live, float to survive, anything else, but the main message there is to float and keep your head above water. Absolutely. Uh, for, uh, and not just for that first minute when you're trying to get your breathing back under control, where it's absolutely critical to fight your instincts and float. But also thereafter, it's still the right thing to do to avoid accelerated cooling, Etc. Et I mean, the other point to make is, of course, you know, swimming between the flags means you're safer. It doesn't necessarily mean you're safe. Uh, there's a distinction. You know, you're definitely going to be safer between the flags because you've got professionals like yourself looking after you. But people still get into trouble between the flags and around the edges of the flags, as you say. So it's no lesser a, a, a reasonable message for that situation. Right, hundred percent. It's. Uh... It's great getting you in, having the and listening to the knowledge that you've got and, and all the work that you've done, and, and it's amazing. And, and hopefully, we can, uh, you know, between us and between other organisations, try and get this message out there. And hopefully, we can uh, reduce drowning because that's my ultimate goal, which I'm pretty sure is yours as well. If we can sit back in another ten years' time and, and see that drowning's reduced around the world, it'd be magnificent. Well, yes, I hope I'm here in 10 years' time. <laughs> <laughs> you still be doing, you'll be still doing a... Uh, you, you'll be the only one doing the yeah. Ironman and you'll be winning. I could be, I could be, I could be in Hawaii by then. <laughs> well, Mike, mate, it's back. great having you. Now, at the end of the, the interview, I do a, a segment called Five Fun Facts, so I'm going to uh, throw some questions at you and uh, answer them however you want, mate. Now, what are the best and worst purchases you've ever made? And then, do you know, I, it, to be fair, I know that you forewarned me about these questions, <laughs> but they're the hardest questions I've answered in many years. Uh, it's, uh, I'd, much, I'd much rather take one on physiology, to be honest. The, the best purchase, I, and it took me a while to come to it, but I wear them all the time, are Zimbabalooba trousers. Okay, so I, I, I'm going to stand up. So here we are. There they are. <laughs> they, um, um, uh, yeah. They are made in Zimbabwe. They're made by a small collective. And so it's, it's, it's a charitable, to some extent, a charitable donation to buy them. But they're cotton trousers. They're the kind of things which climbers would wear. But they're one of the few pieces of clothing where, that you can go to bed in and go to the theatre in and just about get away with it. So uh, I recommend uh, Zimbabwe trousers. And I've worn them now for 30, 40 years. I don't know. They're just really comfortable, particularly when, as we do, a lot of us do now, you sit at home most of the day working. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, <clears throat> the worst purchase, cheap garden tools. The number of times I go to a garden centre and I think I need one of those and there's an expensive option and there's a cheap option. I always buy the cheap option and it always lasts about 10 minutes. But I've just... <laughs> so I guess that's it. But uh, cats or dogs? Uh, dogs. Uh, cats are... Uh, cats are too independent. We had a, uh, a, a, they don't give me the, the, the love and attention that I need. Uh, so we had a dog for 12 years. Um, and it's one of the few times I've shed tears when that dog died. 
Uh, and, I, and I subsequently thought a lot about why I liked it so much. And I came to the conclusion it was because it didn't talk. <laughs> yeah, that's very, very good, very good assumption. Uh, but what are you most proud of? My kids, of course, my two kids, Sam and Jenny, who are both working in a sort of more arts area, but uh, there's no real distinction between art and science. They're both at the, at the, front, at the forefront, imaginative. Uh, outside of that, the kind of stuff that we've talked about today, Hoppo, you know, coming up with, you know, identifying things that are dangerous for people and are claiming your lives and young lives as well and trying finding ways of mitigating them. I think that's, that's, that's been, I think, a worthwhile, a worthwhile pastime. What's the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? This week? Scientifically, it was uh, an editorial that's going to go into the Lancet about the next COP meeting. One of the other things we do a lot with, uh, and I'm sure it's the same with a lot of people in Australia, is the concern over climate change and the impact that's having. And of course, it has an impact on what we do through the amount of flooding we're seeing, raising sea levels. I mean, Bangladesh, 19, 20,000 drownings a year. And so I saw an editorial going into The Lancet saying that, um, you know, uh, we need to keep pushing for mitigation, for reducing fossil fuel usage. Unfortunately, that seems to be disappearing off the agenda. And the next COP is in the UA, United Arab Emirates and, of course, big oil producers. And the book is one actually from a guy who was in Australia, intensive care. I'm reading at the moment called One Medicine. I don't know if you can see that. It's probably too bright. There, we are. there you go. One Medicine. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Matt Morgan and it's what animals uh, have taught us about um, intensive care medicine and you don't have to be a medic or that way inclined to read it it's just a really interesting read so I've been I've been reading that this week mate uh, what song do you have to sing along with when you hear it <laughs> and you don't, you don't have to sing it <laughs> well I, no thank you. you're very lucky the um the, I, I sing. I sing quite a lot, and I play the guitar. And as you can probably see, there's a piano behind me, and there's a there's a there's a guitar just there. You can see there again. So I do do quite a lot of singing. The one that I, I I've I've always been attuned to is uh, Nielsen's "Without um, Without Without You." Problem with that song is that I can only manage about one half of the three octaves it covers. So <laughs> even the dog used to leave the room when that came on. You know, and I was. <laughs> So, but that's the one I, that's, I, for some reason, I just, that's the one I think to. Mate, great stuff. Uh, mate, it's, it's a pleasure having you and chatting and, uh, you know, obviously we'll, uh, we'll be in contact in the future and uh, hopefully we can uh, reduce drowning and uh, save many, many lives because as you've seen and I've seen, it's uh, the families that have to deal with that, it's tragic. No, absolutely. It's, uh, it's just uh, absolute tragedy. And uh, there's way too many of them. Okay, cheers, mate. We'll catch up soon. Thanks, Hoppo. Now let's go to Beach Banner. Okay, in the Beach Shack this week, he's back again, Jacko. He's uh, he likes a bit of Beach Banner. So how are you, Jacko? I'm I'm good, Bruce. I'm good. Not many people call you that, do they, Hop? It's always it's always Hoppo. <laughs> No, nah, mate, I, I I try and fly under the radar with my real name, mate. I just, uh, I dare say 90% of, <laughs> of Bondi Rescue fans wouldn't even know your first name. <laughs> perfect, perfect. <laughs> uh, mate, now we do a lot of serious stuff as lifeguards, as well as having all the uh, banter. And I thought I'd have a chat to you about um, a rescue that stands out for you that, you know, something can be quite serious that we deal with and uh is there something there that stands out for you yeah there's there's look there's a number of things you know you see all the glitz and glamour on the, on the television sometimes of the fun stuff we do but sometimes and it's not you know we work all year round, 365 days a year and sometimes you do get caught out to some pretty grim situations and um Corey and on myself were you know the ones to attend a pretty unfortunate rescue in September last year, I think it was. So, yeah, about nearly nearly a year ago now. And uh, tell us a bit about how that sort of, how you dealt with it and then how it sort of uh, panned out and ended. Yeah, so we were just, you know, patrolling the beaches we usually do on a, on a random day. And, you know, as lifeguards at Bondi, we're responsible for, as you'd know, Hoppo, we're responsible for, you know, a lot of stuff that happens 
not even in our peripheral vision. We've got to look outside of the outside of the scope of just Bondi and and on this case we were called to um, there's a there's a spot right around the corner of the headland as you turn towards North Bondi around from Ben Buckler. You can't actually see it from Bondi. You can only access it by jet ski for us. And we were told that there was um, a couple of spear fishermen there. And because it is known to be a, a pretty popular spear fishing spot, um, we were called to a rescue around there that we heard that it was quite serious and that some people were performing CPR on the spear fishermen. And then when you and Corey got there, what was the decision to, to go up and into the rocks and, and help out? Yeah, it was a it was quite a funny one. Like you know, it was well, I shouldn't say funny, I say tricky. It was really difficult spot to get to. So I had Corey driving the ski, and I was sort of the rescue swimmer on the back as as we as we work our scenarios. And um, we we as soon as Corey and I turned the corner, we noticed that some friends were looked to be in quite a difficult situation, and they were giving CPR to their to their friend on top of the top of a big rock. They'd somehow dragged him up lifeless. I think he might have had a shallow water blackout um, in hindsight. And we were caught up and I had to somehow access where these guys were. So with Corey's great experience with driving the ski, he dropped me into a great spot where I could access the patient. I had to climb up some rocks and, you know, it can, can be tough with, I don't think I had any booties on at the time and you get some sharp edges on your feet. But I suppose in, in those moments, you don't really think about, what you're going over or what even you're attending to. You just got to take a couple of deep breaths and sum up the situation. So in this case, I sort of got to the guy and started giving him CPR, but thought to myself as Corey was circling around and talking to the boys back at Bondi Central that we're going to need to get him into the beach for some, for some extra care. Um, we needed an ambulance and we needed a defibrillator. So we weren't able to access that on the middle of the rock. So I made the call to, to get the guy's, body and we needed to drag him down uh down some rocks and onto the back of the jet ski with Corey and and take him into Bondi where we had the beardy and a couple of the other lifeguards awaiting as well as um some paramedics and police and that's something we've got to do isn't it it's a a split second decision you've got to make a decision do you stay there and continue what you're doing and waiting for emergency service to arrive or do you make the decision to get back to the beach to give the person the best chance he's got it is, and it's a split um, decision you've got to make. And you probably you can do all the training in the world, and you don't really know what you're going to do until you are put in that situation. So, look, unfortunately, this situation we did everything we could. We brought him in. We had a shockable rhythm for him when we tried to resuscitate him back on at Bondi. His friend, who unfortunately lost his mate, was absolutely amazing. He, without his friend giving me a hand to get him onto the back of the jet ski, which will be an experience I'm sure he'll never forget. But he was an integral part of, of getting him in and we did our best. But unfortunately, I think it just wasn't enough. And yeah, it, it was really unfortunate, but also a learning experience for everyone involved. But, you know, a couple of weeks later, I was fortunate enough to receive a phone call from some of his family. And they wanted just to thank myself and Corey for doing our best to help save their brother and their son because, yeah, it was a pretty – the guy was probably my age, so I was a bit rattled and shaken up after that. Um, but we do get lots of support down here. And um, to get that phone call was, you know, it sort of was just a super nice touch to say that, you know, we are recognised for what we do and can be tough at times, but that's why we do it. That's why we're lifeguards down here and um, can be sometimes the best job in the world but can also be very difficult. Yeah, it can be uh, uh, tough at times, and that's what happens. Is uh, we're involved with these incidents, and then the families want to come back and, and and chat to the people that were last with their loved ones, and it can be difficult, though, can't it? Yeah, it can be difficult, but um, we do have good support networks down the beach here at Bondi, and um, we've got counsellors if we need to talk to them, and um, obviously supportive families. So I'm lucky to have both of those. So unfortunate incident but um certainly you've had plenty of fortunate ones as well and you don't know what how long he was there either how they pulled him up onto the rocks and time we get the call you know it could be minutes 10 minutes later before we even get launched to go and help out exactly in circumstances like those we can only get there when we can we've got to get the jet ski off the beach we've got to get our wetsuits on and you know and we don't know how long 
that they it even is before these spear fishermen were spotted by members of the public because they've got no communication. So, yeah, all we can do is um, reflect on how it was and, and we're a strong team down here. So it wasn't a great end of story, but it can be, um, yeah, th- these things can happen. Well, Jacko, mate, great job. And as usual, you always uh, get out there and do a good job. So well done with that one. And uh, thanks for coming in and telling the story. Thanks, Hoppo. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's letter in the mailbag is from Stuart and he's from Perth. He said, I listened to the Andy Donaldson episode uh, recently and it was amazing as I am a long distance swimmer and have done the Rottnest swim solo many times. So it was great to listen and get the insight on what he has to deal with, Andy. Well, thanks, uh, for the letter, it uh, was an amazing uh, feat that he did do. I mean, he's the only person that has been able to do the Oceans 7 Challenge all in the one year, and I think it'll be a long, long time before anyone can break that record. So thanks for your letter, and I'll catch everybody again next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.